guys look good today? Good where you're going for looking good? Today we're starting a new series called Pray Like Jesus. And um, a very important series because uh, we need prayer. You need prayer. I've seen God do things through prayer that couldn't have happened any other way than when God moved in somebody's life to pray and then the people that, God, that they prayed for. So today we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer is what we call it. Uh, I, like to, I prefer to call it the model prayer. I think the Lord's Prayer is John 17. But in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11, Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Now to kind of pull you into this, let me introduce it this way. The, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And I think that's worthy of consideration. I mean, the disciples, it, it wasn't like Jesus said, hey guys, you need to know this. It was, it was spawned from the disciples. There was something in Jesus' life, his prayer life was so significant that the disciples witnessed it in Jesus and in John the Baptist as well because when they asked him, they said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray? And so I want you to see that there was something in Jesus' prayer life that as his disciples witnessed it, they wanted it. Now, what does that mean for you and I? It means we should want a prayer life. And if I could be blunt about it, a Christian life that goes to church, maybe gives and does those kinds of things, but is weak on prayer, is an unhealthy Christian life. Prayer's not optional. Prayer's not one of those things that like, well, I would like to pray, but I don't have time for it. This has to be a priority. It was for Jesus. And if Jesus had a priority set, then we should have the same priority. Amen? So for Jesus, praying was important. Now, why did the disciples look at Jesus' prayer life and go, dude, I want that? I don't know if they said dude or not, but I think it was in the Greek or something, man, Aramaic. Dude, I want what Jesus had. Why? There's a story that I think sheds a little light on it. Jesus had gone on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he had shown the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, he had shown them who he really was. He kind of peeled back the humanity for a moment so they could kind of see they weren't just dealing with some prophet, but with the Son of God. When they came off the mountain, Jesus comes down, and the other disciples were at the foot of the mountain, and they had tried to heal a young man who had a spirit of ep epilepsy. That's what they dealt with in the Bible, and what we still deal with today in areas. So, but nonetheless, he had a spirit of epilepsy, and so they couldn't do anything about it, though. They had tried to minister to the boy, had tried to cast it out, and the father was just absolutely frustrated. When Jesus came down, he, he asked him what was going on. The father said, my son has epilepsy. And Jesus says, well, we, we need to get this thing out. And the father says, well, how, how can we do that? And he, he didn't believe. Anyway, long story short, the young boy goes home healed because when Jesus shows up, things change. Amen? So he went home healed. The disciples came to Jesus after that and said, why couldn't we do this? you got to remember, he had sent them out to throw out demons, to heal it empowered them to do kingdom ministry from the beginning. They went out, they had done it, they had seen this happen, but they couldn't handle this young boy. And Jesus' answer to them was this, this kind is only dealt with through prayer and fasting. And he wasn't talking about praying and fasting in the moment, because even Jesus was surprised, well not surprised, but he encountered the scenario out of the blue, so to speak. He was talking about a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. A lifestyle that exemplifies something that we used to call, and I still call, consecration. A life that is set apart for God. Does that make sense? Prayer's about that. It's about setting apart, not just time to pray, but a life to be filled with prayer. Okay? And prayer's one of the most powerful things that anyone can do. I just want to say that straight up. You got issues in your life, challenges, marriage problems, Problems with your kids, money problems, whatever. If you're not praying about them, you are missing the most powerful thing that can intervene. And there are people in this room that could testify today about times that they faced insurmountable problems. And the only reason that those problems got better is because somebody was praying. Okay? You ready? You ready to learn to pray like Jesus? I am not convinced. I am not convinced. Are you ready to pray like Jesus? Yes! All right, let's do this. Okay, Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read out the NLT. I know that will throw some of you off your game, but it's okay. Just bear with me. I just want everyone to be able to understand it. Matthew 6, verse 9. 
pray like this. <laughs> Excuse me. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. That will be our focus today, but I want to read the prayer each week, okay? May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Okay? Now, some of you were quoting along in your King James, and that's totally fine. I just want you to have it. The Lord's Prayer is an important model prayer to keep in your heart. And you can pray it. I don't want to come against that. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of liturgy in your life where you go through some of these rhetorical-type things, these things that you repeat. But I want you to see the, the framework of it. And today, it's a real simple framework. I mean, it's our Father, His kingdom, our daily bread, and leading us and delivering us and those things. And that's basically how this series will work. So today, we're going to talk about our Dad, our Heavenly Father. Now, a little bit of clarification. As I go into this, I realize there are Daddy issues in the house, okay? And I need you to set those aside. Okay, because we're talking about the perfect father, okay, that no earthly father, no matter how amazing he may have been, could ever achieve. Your earthly father is not the lens by which you view your heavenly father. Your heavenly father is the lens by which you view your earthly father. Does that make sense? We've got to flip that around because so many people, their relationship with God is broken because their earthly relationship with their earthly father was problematic, okay? So we can't do that. God defines everything. He's the basis and foundation for everything. So as we move into prayer, we realize that prayer moves us into God's presence. How would you like to hang out with God? Does that sound like a cool thing to do? I think it sounds like a cool thing to do. Hanging out with God is better than hanging out with even Michael Longfellow. I like hanging out with Michael Longfellow. It's even better than hanging out with Jason Peake, and he barbecues, so I'm just saying. All right? <laughs> I hope I didn't just get you a whole lot of invites. Anyway, so John 4, 24, Jesus said, God's a spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, okay? So prayer moves us into that presence of God. Jesus expected us to move that way, okay? But let me give you another verse out of Ecclesiastes 5. And I want to I share this verse cautiously. I... I, God is our friend, okay? He is our Father, and we are friends of God, as the old worship song says. But our, we need to approach our relationship with God from an, a position and an attitude of reverence. So let me give you Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and then I'll break this down. But the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, As you enter the house of God, and I, I want to telescope this over into prayer because anytime you go into prayer you're entering the house of God okay as you enter the house of God keep your ears open and your mouth shut I know I just quoted your mother um that's where she got it from she's just quoting the bible at you anyway it's evil to make mindless offerings to God don't make rash promises don't be hasty in bringing matters before God after all, God's in heaven, you're here on earth, so let your words be few. What is Solomon trying to tell us? Yes, we are friends of God and through what Jesus Christ has done, and I don't want to minimize a close, intimate relationship with God. What I want to maximize is that God is serious business. When you pray, let me, let me flip this around for a second. Uh, what if you, some of you guys, most of you guys have kids in the room. I mean, what if you guys were sitting in whatever the room is of your house that you chill? I don't know if people ever actually do nothing anymore, but maybe you're in a season where you're just sitting there. What if your children just walked by the door, say your office or den or something, and just shouted at you, Hey, Dad, I like pizza. And you're like, What? <laughs> hey, Dad, I think you're okay. Hey, and I'll see you later. Now, I know you're like, that would be a stupid relationship to have with a child. And yet, that's exactly the kind of relationship we have with God most of the time. We're randomly shouting out our needs at God. And we seldom take time to walk into his office and say, Father, may I talk? 
may we speak. Does that make sense to you? I'm just, praying without ceasing is an awesome thing as long as you are in company with your Father. Praying without ceasing is an awful thing if you are just randomly shouting out your needs to God. Okay? Without waiting to hear from Him. Does that make sense? That may be a little strong, but I'm just telling you, we need to move from this attitude of prayer like it's too much work, I don't have time for it, it doesn't really do anything for me, and I know I am saying things that you would never say out loud, but that you say in your mind. I'm kind of good at that. <clears throat> I'm saying we need to move into an attitude of prayer that is like Jesus, where we want to actually be with our truest Father. Amen? So, what does Jesus teach us about prayer? First of all, he teaches us that our Father is holy. Our Father is holy. If you don't know what that means, then you are in a proper position of understanding. Why? R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, which I highly recommend every person read, says that holiness isn't just alien to uh, our earthly experience, but it's alien to everything we could possibly know. Holiness is something that we in our human experience cannot, we have no, we have no measure for, we have no lens for. When we say that God is holy, we are in essence saying God is other. He is something more and greater and other than myself. One of the worst things you could do in your understanding of God is to try and telescope human personality and frailty upon and so, And when we do that, we profane his name. When we make God like us. God is not like us in any way. He is above us. We reflect his image. We are made in his image. But we... Are, but that's the extent of that. God is completely other. So when we talk about God as being holy, that should provoke a lifetime of wonder in the moment of prayer. A lifetime of every time I come to God, if I am really fully in the moment with God, His holiness should be something that staggers me. It should be something that backs me up. It's one of those things that when I say God is holy, my spirit should shudder a bit. Why? Isaiah 6, I think, is the best visual. And I know I talk about it all the time, but it's a a great chapter to help you capture the impact of God's holiness upon frail humanity. In that chapter is the passage where Isaiah finds himself laying on the floor of the throne room of God, crying out, woe is me, which is like a funeral pronouncement. I mean, it's like, I, and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. And what he's, what he's saying, if I could Americanize slash Michaelize it a bit, he is saying, God, you are, blow, you are literally blowing my cells apart with your holiness. That's the holiness of God. As you, as you work through the Bible, you encounter people who meet God, and without fail, not only people who meet God, but people who meet people who have been in the presence of God. Just the secondhand presence of God literally put people on the ground, on their knees, begging for mercy. So when you come to God in prayer, God, Jesus is telling us, hallowed be thy name is what a lot of the older translations say to us. And they're turning holiness in a sense into a verb, so to speak. But making his name holy, keeping his name holy. So let me crawl in your crib just a second, all right? I know OMG is a great little response on a text, but it's actually profaning the name of God. If you're going to talk about God in a text or on Facebook, talk about God don't use him as a profanity, okay? Use my name as a pro- profanity. O-M-M. That's cool. Oh, my Michael. Or it could be your name. Oh, my Michael. But don't use his, because he's holy. And, and he just doesn't deserve to be dragged through the mud like that. You know what I'm saying? And I know you're sitting there going, well, I didn't mean anything by it. Why are you making me feel bad? Because our God is holy. And we really need to understand that. I want to give you two other translations. Well, okay, translations is such an overstatement about, about what I'm going to do. I'm going to call, this is the Passion, there's a Bible out there called the Passion Translation, but it should be called the Passion Commentary. 
And if you like the Passion Translation, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, it's, it expands on things sometimes a little bit more than this old conservative likes. All right? But in that translation, Brian Simmons tells us, he translates Matthew 6, 9 in this way. Pray like this. Our Father, dwelling in the heavenly realms, may the glory of your name be the center on which our lives turn. It's a great application of holiness. It's not a good translation, but it's a great application. And, and I know you're saying, well, I don't care. And that's fine. I do care. This is important to me. But I do want you to hear the application of it. That here, Brian Simmons uses the word, because in the Aramaic, the word name comes from the Hebrew word shema, which could mean light, could mean air, atmosphere, and it could mean sound. And so basically, his basis for the translation is that when we make God's name holy, we put it at the center and we magnify it as the center of our lives. And I do think that's a good place to start praying. And if you like the Message Bible, which is also a paraphrase and doesn't claim to be anything more than that, the Message Bible says, Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. And I think that is also an excellent application of the holiness of God because this is really what we're asking God to do. God, reveal your holiness. I don't understand it. Guys, I've been studying the Bible a long time, and holiness is still foreign to me. There are days it literally blows me away. And it was so powerful among the reformers. Jonathan Edwards had a sermon called The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in which he magnified the holiness of God to such an extent that his audiences would, would quiver in tears before it was done. And he read the sermon. He didn't even do like I do and have drama or anything like that. He just read the thing and people, just the reality of God's holiness in the presence of our sinfulness would just shatter people's understanding of themselves, which can be a very healthy thing, and was. And so God is holy. Got that? God is holy. And of course, our title of the message is God is our Father. God is our Father. So I have a verse for this. I better read it. Romans eight fourteen is one of my favorites. But all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, I want to read that again. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. You received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. You have been adopted into God's family as a child of God. That's what God wants to do for every person on this planet, is to adopt them into his family. He wants to call you his son or you his daughter. That's what God wants to do. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, with Jesus on the throne of your life, because that's what a Christian is, that puts you in a place where now you have a name that comes from your dad, your heavenly father. The Bible says that in Ephesians 3.15, after whom everything on earth is named, heaven and earth is named. So you have a name that comes from your father. You have an identity that comes from your father. By the way, the earthly relationship of father and child was meant to be a symbol and an instruction to teach us about our heavenly relationship. That's why most people get their name from their father in this life. They get their identity from their father in this life. Even if it's one you don't want, you still get it, right? You, uh, your father, your heavenly father gives you a name, he gives you an identity, he gives you a vocation, Especially in the, the ancient world, your, whatever your dad did, that's what you did. That's where a lot of lo last names came from, was what your father did. And it was passed down from generation to generation. But also, in that vocation, the father gave you an authority. Let me t I'll talk about that in just a second. The best way to understand what it means to be a child of God and to have God as a father is to look at the life of Jesus Christ. How did he live his life? First thing he did, he lived loved. Remember that. Jesus lived loved. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, as he comes up out of the, bat, out, out of the water, the Father, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So i got to ask you a question, and this isn't meant to drive guilt, but it, it is meant to make us think, is it possible that one of the reasons we struggle to pray is because we struggle with God-loving 
us. That's why it's so important to live loved. It's critical that you understand that your Heavenly Father loves you. That you grow in that understanding of love. I can't tell you the, the great names and minds who have, who have just absolutely staggered at the reality of God's love. 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See how very much our Father loves us. For He called us His children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Your Father loves you. You don't deserve it. He doesn't love you because you're awesome. He loves you and He's going to make you awesome. He loves you because He chooses to love you. He loves you in spite of you, but He will never stop loving you. But, <laughs> you go, I knew there was a but coming. There is a difference between unconditional love and relationship. We live in a world that assumes that unconditional love means that there, that, that is also an unconditional relationship. I, I, love, I love the illustration of marriage. In a marriage, you have to have unconditional love. But, there have to be conditions for there to be a relationship. No, Michael, I know some of you are arguing. You're like, no, no. There can only be unconditional love. No, uh, unconditional can, love can always stand no matter about the conditions within the relationship. But in order for you to actually be close with each other, there has to be like, I don't know, faithfulness, fidelity, you know? One woman, one man together. You define marriage so narrowly. Yep. <laughs> one man, one woman in relationship together requires that they be committed to each other. And so there can be unconditional love. I love you no matter what you do. But if we're going to have a relationship, there are always conditions. And the better and stronger the relationship, the higher the conditions. Now, Michael, what does this have to do with the love of God? Jesus lived loved by his Father, and he also lived in obedience to his Father. Now, there's a word the modern world has a problem with. We think, God loves me unconditionally, so I can come to God, I can be saved, and then I can do whatever I want. God loves you unconditionally, but you will not be in relationship with God doing whatever you want. In fact, there's so much talk, and I believe it. There's so much teaching that's good teaching on the reality that we have authority in Jesus Christ. But here's what you need to understand. In order for you to live and move in authority, you have to live and breathe in obedience. You can quote me on that. Okay? Without obedience, you don't have authority. Just ask your boss at work. He gives you authority to do a job, right? And you, go to the, and you go to do that job and say, you know what, today I have the authority. We're all taking the day off. You have that authority that day to take the day off, but you probably won't the next. Why? Because your boss doesn't love you? Well, he probably doesn't, but that's not what it's about. It's about the relationship between obedience and authority. And I don't want to get political or anything, but I'm going to. Uh, <clears throat> Guys, I'm an American, and I'm proud to be an American a lot of days. <clears throat> Maybe not every day, but anyway. But I am tired of hearing people talk about our rights. Dude, yes, I'm gonna, I may upset you. Get over it. Uh, think about it, okay? A right given by someone is a responsibility received by someone else. Amen? You can, you can declare rights all day long, but any right you give me becomes my responsibility. And just so you're like, I don't know which side of the political flavor he's on. I'm just on whatever offends you, actually. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know where he's at. Let me just put it this way. Neither the government nor the people have done a good job with their responsibilities. That's my opinion, okay? That is not the word of God, other than God says we're all lost in sin, so there's that going on. But other than that, just want you to know, it's the same way with your authority in Christ. To live in authority, you have to live in obedience. 
I'm not a legalist by any stretch of the imagination. I believe in grace. But grace is the most powerful thing in the world to produce obedience. Through grace, you can obey God in ways you never thought possible. Grace will overcome. Someone who's using grace as an excuse to live defeated in sin is someone who's lying to themselves and bringing a mar on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die so you could slip out of this life as dirty as possible and make it into heaven. He died on the cross to make you righteous and holy and to make you look like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you for everyone who was in there with me on that. I know some of you are thinking about it, and that's okay. You can chew on it. Just remember, I'm right. All right, now. How does God loving us, and how does God being a father to us, how does that benefit us? We always like to know what's in it for me, I guess. So I thought I'd take a minute and tell us a little bit. So 1 Peter 5, 7, love this verse. It says, give all your worries and cares to God. Give all your worries and cares to God because he cares for you. That verse is a product of God being your father. That verse exists. Because he's your father and he cares about you. God cares about you. He is not some distracted, absentee, detached father in heaven. Okay, He's not like your earthly father in any way. Got to stop defining God by your experience and start defining God by his word and who he says he is. And so he is not a detachment. He cares about you. He's involved in your life. What's that passage in Psalms I have, Creed? Psalms chapter 36, 32. Says, Lord, I, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you. I will watch over you. That is the kind of father he wants to be in your life. And I know. I know what it's like to be in that place like, God, I'm lost and I can't hear you. Your experience can never define your relationship here it feels like at times that God isn't involved but he is and you have to trust that this is one of the benefits of being a child of God is that God is intimately involved in my life he cares about my life and we have to stop telescoping our daddy issues on our heavenly father so one of the benefits is that God pays attention to us second benefit is God is generous to us did you know that did you know that God was generous to us again this is one of those things where we try we lock God in a box and say well I mean I asked this I asked God for this and he didn't give it to me so God must be like a stingy miser one day my four-year-old asked me for the keys to the car and I gave them to him no I'm just kidding just to see what would happen. No, they were the keys to Jason's car. Anyway, so what's my point? Sometimes just because we ask God for things that we're not ready for doesn't mean God is stingy. Does that make sense? So sometimes there are things in our life that we're asking him for that, we, that God is waiting for us to be ready for. He's not up in heaven. Come on, man, seriously. God is not up in heaven going, oh, man, I just, I'm going to get him today. As soon as he messes up today, I got him. That is not how God rolls. In fact, how God works is every day he's looking at your life. He's looking at every life, but he might as well be looking at your life like it's the only life. That's how closely he's watching your life. He's looking at your life, and he's looking for opportunities to bless you every day with the biggest gifts that you can receive. God isn't a bare minimum God. Jesus didn't die so we could have a little bit of life. He died so we could have abundant, excessive, overflowing life. Our Father is generous. Someone needs this. Some of you are asking for God to heal you. And your your sickness is the result of something you did. And you don't think he will release you from the sickness or the disease because it's your fault. Well, I want you to know, he's a good father. Your faults are covered in the blood of Jesus. And when you are ready, you will be released. Amen? I don't know who that's for, but 
I believe it's for someone. So, and you can let me know at the end of the service if it's for you. It would help me out. God is generous. He gives us himself. He gives us his glory. He gives us his job. Gives us protection. Gives us his home. He shares his eternal home with us. I don't want any of you living with me, but God's going to let us live with him. That's great. Shares his joy. Shares his son. Shares his Holy Spirit. But most importantly, he shares himself. He is a generous God. I believe, I've come to a recent belief that faith is coming to a place where I understand that God is generous. That I'm not begging God for stuff he doesn't want to give me, but that I am talking to my father and he wants to bless me. Change the way you think about your father, you'll change your life. God is holy. God is father. God is good. Nice lag. Let's try it again. God I know you didn't see it coming. I I tried to telescope it, but anyway. God is good. And all the time. Now, when we talk about God being good, Psalm 116, 119, verse 68. If you've never read Psalm 119, and you love the Bible, you have got to read Psalm 119. Okay, but anyway, Psalm 119, 68 says this. You are good and do only good. That's about God. God (laughs) God is good and does only good. He's a good God. Now, that means like, you could use that term about God. When we use the term good, it might be utility, like the first chapter of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens, the earth, everything was good. That's just describing that everything was good. And and there's a lot of meaning there, but it's kind of a utility term. You know, that was a good thing, or we did this good thing. So God is good in a utilitarian type way. Uh, But you could also be talking about character, like God has a good character. And we could talk about people. And that reference. But that is not what David's talking about. That is not what Jesus meant when he said to the rich young ruler, there's only one good and that's God. He was talking about an absolute goodness. Take your understanding of an unconditional love and lay that over the top of goodness and you'll have a better understanding. God is absolutely good. Now you and I, we're good occasionally. We're good some days. Sometimes we're relatively good. Sometimes you're, are you relatively good? You had a salad for lunch, but you had a banana split for supper. That was, I was relatively good. All right? You drive only three miles over the speed limit instead of ten. I'm relatively good. I'm related to good. We're cousins. And if you're from where I'm from, and we date. Uh, But anyway, that's a totally inappropriate joke. Totally inappropriate joke. So I'm sorry. (sighs) I'm taking a little trip this week. I might be a little hyper. I'm sorry. So anyway, (laughs) please forgive me. Uh, But the point is God is good and he is absolutely good. Now, again, back to that lens. A lot of times we telescope our issues in life. We look at God through our earthly lenses. We have to stop doing that. And one of those things is about God's goodness. We We say often it's common in our world to argue against the goodness of God because bad things happen. And that's, that's a, it's not a wise argument, it's not a balanced argument, it's not a healthy argument, it's just not true. First of all, let me say this. If we can admit that there is good in the world, in fact, let's do it. is there good, do good things happen in our world? By making that admission, we are also admitting that there is a standard of good, that there is a creator of good. I'm just saying, I want to point out this simple thing, and I don't have time to pull out the full logical string of it, but I'm just saying, when we admit that there is any kind of good in the world at all, we're actually admitting that there is a God. How else could goodness get there without a source of goodness? You could argue that a lot of things could evolve, but you can't argue the the evolving of consciousness, and you certainly can't argue the the evolving of good and goodness. But... <clears throat> to take that lens off of bad things happen in the world, therefore God must be bad. First of all, God's not the origin of evil. If you read Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you will see that God said to Adam, not exactly in this words, but Michael asked, hey Adam, don't let evil in here. That's what he said when he said don't eat the fruit. Don't let evil in. Evil's in the world, not because God brought it, but because we brought it. Through Adam. This isn't God's fault. That's the point, okay? Secondly, we deny that evil can have good purposes. 
I know. Ask any family, though, that's gone through suffering with someone's addiction in their family, and they will tell you that in order for someone who's going through addiction to come to a place where they will change, you have to stop enabling them and let them suffer until they're sick of it. So evil has a purpose that can be good. Third, who are you to judge God? Seriously, how long are you going to live? 70, 80, maybe some of you will pull off 100 years and you think you know as, not, as much as the ancient of days? I mean, sir, you, you don't know, we don't know anything. Uh, we, we don't know anything about our own planet. We, we, we don't have absolute knowledge of anything in our lives and in our ignorance we declare God evil. That is the most arrogant and proud and foolish thing you could ever do. And yet, that's, that is something that happens in our world. So my point simply is this. God is good, and we can't let evil tell us that he's not. God is good for a lot of reasons. He's good because of his providence. I've got to hurry up because I have to be done by two. Um, <clears throat> I do that to reset your expectations so I'll have longer. <clears throat> God is good because of his providence. James 1.17, James says every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And so God is good because he provides for us in so many ways. I mean, this morning I had a, a breakfast burrito, you know, and I bought it at Walmart yesterday, put it in the microwave this morning, and you're like, oh, Michael, you did a good job. got yourself a burrito. No, no, no. God provided me the burrito. <clears throat> I should have made a better choice. I know that. I'm just saying God provides. I live in Wyoming, man. I love it here. I mean, the wind's what it is, but, you know, I mean, but it's great. You can throw your trash out in the front yard and it goes straight to Colorado. It's awesome. <laughs> no problem. There's benefits even to the wind. But, man, we have the Tetons, the Wind River, some of the most beautiful landscapes in the world right here in Wyoming, man. God provided that. Not only does God provide, but he also communicates. He communicates through nature. That's why your heart longs for nature. That's the reason we like to get out there in it, because there's a way God speaks through us, through the beauty of this planet that he created that just moves us on a level we cannot describe. And i got to tell you, God hasn't done anything really to this planet to improve it in like at least 6,000 years. 6,000 years at least were removed from God's direct touch. And it still looks this good. He's an amazing creator. God is a God. He's good. He provides for us. He communicates with us through the earth, the moon, the stars. But man, then he communicates with us through his word. Have you ever, have you ever just taken time to be humble that the reality that you have an English Bible and multiple translations available to you? That is a miracle. Do you know that the existence of the English Bible was fought day after day? It was tried to keep, people tried to keep it out of your hands. It's an amazing book. And, and any day, I've got like, I don't know how many on my shelf. And, and I have an iPad, so I have like 30 translations. I only read three, but I have 30 translations in there. That is God's word to me. But all that pales, all that pales in comparison his providence, his communication, his word, it pales in comparison to his redemption. Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. And this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Human sin was a tragedy. Adam rejecting God. It broke the whole planet, and we're still under its curse today. God owed us nothing. Do you understand that? The angels did not get a plan of redemption. God put Adam and Eve in that garden as the perfect created representatives of the human race. No one could have stood in their, our place better than Adam and Eve. It's representative theology, and it makes good sense, okay? No one could have represented us better. And in that garden, Adam and Eve committed an act that any one of us would have committed and worse had we been in their shoes. We can blame them all they want, but the truth is they were us. 
They committed a sin. They rebelled against God, and humanity was put in the place of death. It should have been over for us. But God so loved you and me that he sent his only son. The greatest story ever told, the greatest story ever lived is the story that saved your soul. God is good because he put his son on the cross for my sin. If you ever doubt his goodness, you need only stare at his sacrifice. Amen? God is good. I love that quote. A friend of mine taught it to me. There are days it's really hard to say. And those are the days that you need to shout it the loudest. God is good all the time. The last thing I want to say about God's goodness is that it is God's goodness that leads us to repentance. I love the fact that God doesn't just slap us around until we grow some sense. Sometimes you want to do that to people. My wife and I have a joke in our house that I probably shouldn't tell you, but I've already started. You ever been on the phone with someone like customer service and you got messed up on your phone bill or something and you're trying to communicate to someone who barely speaks English, one. Or two, they're working off a script and they have no idea what they can do for you, you know. And so my wife and I started saying, hey, we have a person here who needs a reboot, like a Windows computer. And so we say to him, hey, we need to reboot you, but we're not going to lie, it's going to hurt. <laughs> Are there any stairs near where you are? No, I'm just kidding. We don't actually say that to people. But God isn't like that. God doesn't move in our lives by abusing us until we see his goodness. He says in Romans 2, 4, it says, Do you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? I think the irony in that is that the enemy often tricks us into thinking that God's kindness, tolerance, and patience are God's aloofness that God is somehow detached from us because he's not immediately doing something in our life to correct us. But the Bible teaches us through Paul in Romans 2.4 that this is God's kindness and it's meant for a purpose. The purpose is to turn us from our sin. God uses goodness to turn us from our sin. 2 Peter 3.9, a favorite verse of many, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. He's being patient. For your sake, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Let's remember that God's goodness is what is meant to bring us to repentance. And, and I, uh, lastly, but I have a conclusion, so I'll second to last. So God is holy, God is Father, God is good, and God is faithful. God is faithful. That's why we sang the song, Do It Again. I love that song. Very much. I've listened to it a lot in the last few months. God is so faithful. He was faithful to Abraham when he said, Abraham, you are going to have a son. But it was 25 years before Abraham was ready to be Isaac's dad. That wasn't God's fault. <laughs> but God was faithful, even though Abraham was kind of a mess up. Mo God was faithful to Moses. I believe that Moses had the call on his heart to be the deliverer for Israel when he was a young man at the age of 40. But he went about it in Moses' way. And God had to put him out in the wilderness raising sheep for 40 years so he'd learn how to be God's man, not Moses' man. But God was faithful. And Moses got to speak with God face to face. Moses had a faith in God that, I mean, seriously, how do you walk out in the middle of the Red Sea and part one? I don't know. But somehow, Moses knew. Why? Because God was faithful. God was faithful that David kept his ancestors on the throne all the way, well, all the way up till the, the total fall, but he kept the, the, the line of David intact all the way to Jesus because of a promise that God made. God is faithful. He's faithful even when he doesn't look faithful. He was faithful to Paul even when Paul was in jail and when Paul was on missionary journey planting churches. He was faithful in both scenarios. God is faithful. He is faithful to you. He will not let you down. 
He will, not, he will not walk out on you. He will not abandon you. And I know your heart cries out some these places, these lonely places where you feel abandoned. I know, I get that. But feeling abandoned and being abandoned are different things. And when God says, I will not leave you, I will not abandon you, in Hebrews 13, 5, he means it. Whether you are being persecuted, attacked, whether your reputation's being slaughtered, whether people love you or hate you, whether you're going through a divorce or you are single or you're happily married, whether you have lots of money or no money, whether you're broke, whether you're in debt, whether you're sick, whether you're dying, whether you have disease, doesn't matter. God is faithful. Sorry, I got excited. I'm not excited. I got, I'm, I'm not sorry I got excited. He will protect you. You can... <laughs> I bet everybody in this room has a story where they think God saved their life. I bet everybody has at least one. He will protect you. And just because you're going through a situation where it looks like God didn't protect you, I want you to know God did protect you. It could have been a lot worse. He will deliver you. He will. By the way, these are all scriptures you can look up, okay? But I, to save time, he'll, he will save you. He will deliver you. He will protect you. He is so, so faithful. So, God is holy, God is Father, God is good, God is faithful. What is the point of all this? Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father, may your name be kept holy. He wants you to pray. He wants you to recognize God as your Father. Paul exemplified it in Ephesians 3.14. He said, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, of whom everything in heaven and earth is named. He wants you to pray. And so, we need to learn to do that. We Christians, man, uh, we're not perfect. Our Father is. We're supposed to be perfect like Him, but we're not perfect. I don't know if you've recognized this about yourself or not, so I guess I'll just point at me so it makes it easier for you, but we worship a lot of stupid stuff. I mean, I don't have anything against sports, but sometimes we come together and sports is what we worship and hold up. And We know more about quarterbacks and pitchers than we do about our holy God. I like movies, man. I, I know a lot of actors and so forth. Sometimes we come together in meetings like this and we are here about Jesus Christ and we spend more time talking about the latest movie that came out than about our Father. If we aren't careful, we are going to let our distractions define us as a people of God. Does that make sense? That's why prayer is so important. God is our focus. All these other things that we talk about like we worship, I know you really don't think of them as idols or things that we worship, and I'm not trying to paint them that way, but the reality is they are our distractions. Jesus is our focus. So if you're going to learn to pray, it's going to take at least three things. One, focus. Jesus deserves focused prayer time. Your Father has done enough to warrant you walking into his office for the conversation. It requires focus. Prayer is also built on something I will call intensity. Good, strong prayer that moves in our lives is fueled by a passion and a commitment to the one to which we pray. If our God is holy, that means he's set apart. He's totally unique. That means if I'm going to meet with him in his holy place, guess what I have to be? I have to be set apart. I can't pull my big screen in there with me into his office. Or my little screen either. <laughs> Oops. Prayer's about focus, it's about intensity, but even more than that, it's about consistency. This sermon isn't intended to generate guilt. I've found that most people can generate guilt just fine without me. But if you are going to learn to pray... You have to start somewhere, and you have to keep at it. Does that make sense? Start. Enter into the Father's office. 
Sorry, I can't get that image out of my head. Now it's stuck there. And do it often. And stay a while. And learn to stay longer. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. Isn't that why we have so many distractions? We're trying to find a piece of happiness. So we go on the Netflix binge or we scroll Facebook for days or whatever. We're just trying to feel good for a second. And God says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. Maybe I'm going to the wrong place. Father, we're just a bunch of disciples. And we have to be honest, we, we don't know how to pray. And we need Jesus to teach us to pray. I love how the Luke 11 account has the disciples saying, Jesus, would you teach us to pray like John did? And it just, it, the way Luke writes it, it's like Jesus immediately pulled up a chair and sat with the boys and said, okay, here's how you do it. I ask you, Lord, to do that with us today. First, that you would awaken hearts to go, I need to learn how to pray. And Lord, I could have spent a long time talking about why we need to pray. But Lord, if you would awaken hearts to to a hunger, says, I need to learn to pray and talk to my Father. Then, Lord, I know that hunger will produce the request. Jesus, teach me to pray. And I know the request will produce the presence. And Jesus will educate us all on prayer. I thank you for the opportunity to get to take one of the most precious scriptures in God's word and talk about my Father today. Please help us learn to pray. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.